Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to be with you all. Wisconsin was the epicenter for 2020 politics this week. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden both visited the city of Kenosha, which of course has been rocked by weeks of violence in the wake of the shooting of an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake, by police officers. Not surprisingly, Trump and Biden delivered very different messages. The idea that this president continues to try to divide us, give succor to the white supremacist, talks about how there's really good people on both sides, talks about, talks in ways that are just absolutely, I, I, I've never used this regard to president before, not only incorrect, but immoral. They're just simply wrong. You take a look what's been happening for the last 94 days, we would put it out within one hour, would take one hour, maybe less. And that's really what happened here. And it happened in Minneapolis also. Came in, it went for nine days, and we came in. It ended almost from the minute we came in. Now, these last two weeks have provided President Trump the best opportunity to reset a race in which he's been badly trailing Biden all summer. His Republican convention offered a rosy and inaccurate portrayal of a president who effectively tackled the coronavirus pandemic. Both during and since the convention, Republicans and the president have focused intensely on the unrest in Kenosha, arguing that it was a snapshot into what the country would look like with Joe Biden in the White House. But polls released this week show that, for now at least, Trump's attempts at a reset have failed. Biden's lead is anywhere from 7 to 10 points, not much different from where the race stood in early August. To talk through all of this and more, I sat down with Maya King, politics reporter at Politico, and Katie Glick, national politics reporter for The New York Times. Here's Katie. So both Donald Trump and Joe Biden headed to Kenosha this week and put forward radically different visions about how to confront questions of law enforcement and racial injustice. Uh, President Trump went first, and his focus was really heavily on questions of law enforcement, on what he cast as chaos in the streets. Uh, He did not meet with the family of Jacob Blake. Uh, He was uh, dismissive of questions around systemic racism, and he really tailored his message message uh, to focus on law enforcement. Uh, Biden went there uh, a a couple of days after President Trump did, uh, and he sought to engage perhaps a broader audience. Um, Certainly he nodded to law enforcement. He condemned uh, the degree to which any protests um, have uh, on either side veered into violence. Uh, But he also made a really concerted appeal to black voters. Uh, He met with Jacob Blake's family. He spoke with Mr. Blake by phone. Um, And and he offered a really forceful promise to seek to dismantle systemic racism should he become president. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, Katie, there were calls really almost from the beginning for Joe Biden to go to Kenosha. And uh, he he did, obviously, but not until after Trump had gone. What was the thinking from the Biden campaign about going there now? Sure. So, of course, 
Biden has been extremely cautious about his travel during the pandemic, um, with the exception of the campaign stops uh, in his home state of Delaware and in neighboring Pennsylvania. You know, we really have not seen him get out there much uh, since March when the coronavirus pandemic shuttered the campaign trail. Uh, and, you know, Biden himself has said that he would like to be out there more, but he's very conscious of trying to set a good example. Uh, that That's part of his message, uh, setting a good example for you know taking this virus seriously, social distancing wearing a mask uh, was you know has uh, his team has certainly been very critical of the big rallies that Donald Trump uh, had over the summer uh, but at the same time uh, you know we were certainly hearing uh, during the Republican National Convention and after a number of Joe Biden's allies uh, making the case that he does need to be getting out there more and, and especially uh, they felt that that he needed to be pushing back a little bit more directly on some of the characterizations of Biden that that the Republicans were making around his approach to as they put a law and order issues. So, mm. you know, a, a combination of those dynamics, but but also really the calendar. Uh, you know, Biden is, had said uh, that, that he had intended to get out into these swing states uh, more vigorously after Labor Day. And then uh, this really sort of searing event came into view and uh, they ended up accelerating that. Maya, I want to talk about this question, too, that that in Katie's answer sort of amplified as well is, is sort of how the national media seems to have framed the issue of Kenosha as a campaign issue. And it's mostly been around this question of how the violence we're seeing there, but also in Portland, is going to impact swing voters, which is really code for white voters. And it seems like there's been very little attention paid to the ways in which what we're seeing in Kenosha or other cities around the country are impacting black voters. How do you see it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think um, I think you're right to point out that a lot of times uh, the conversation around swing voters really is referring to to white voters. Um, and that's a coalition or excuse me, a demographic that has really been added in, in a large number to Biden's coalition. Um, Politico has polling with Morning Consult that shows even as uh, support for Black Lives Matter has fallen, from June um, to to now to September by about nine points, um, Biden still has a significant lead over over President Trump um, on the issue of race, and I think that's an important thing to point out because that's because African Americans still remain a very strong demographic um, for the vice president and or for the for the former vice president and i think you know african american voters have long pointed out the issues in policing and in public safety have long been calling for changes um, to the criminal justice system and it's an issue that democrats have certainly given a lot of lip service to um, but haven't necessarily acted upon really with significant policy changes in many years arguably many decades and that's, I think, also what makes uh, Joe Biden's trip to Kenosha so significant um, is that he's he's really leaning into, of course, his retail politics skills by making sure that he's engaging with black voters and voters um, in that area. But he's also calling the thing what it is, which is something that um, for, that President Trump has not really been able to capture, which is the real existence of systemic racism. Um, and then taking that a step further by saying not only um, does he plan to acknowledge the existence of this issue, but that he plans to, in his administration and a Biden administration, address and, and rectify these issues, which is a really, again, I think a very significant um, 
uh, moment for for him and his campaign because a number of black voters, particularly at the margins, I'm thinking about um, African-American men in particular, Mm -hmm. are still very familiar with what this ticket represents um, as a former prosecutor on the vice presidential slot and, of course, the architect um, of the 94 crime bill as the presidential pick. You know, that's a really good point, Maya. And and also, you know, I think a lot of us, especially those of us who grew up in in 1990s politics, you know, what we would have seen from a, another Democratic candidate going to Kenosha would be leaning in almost exclusively on, as Katie said, pushing back on this question about whether the Democrat is soft on crime, right, and spending very little time talking about systemic racism. But what you're saying is, actually, Joe Biden is is doing both of those things, which is kind of rare for any candidate to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it, it again, just these two candidates, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, could not be any more different. And I think Kenosha is a really great example of just how fundamentally different these two these two men, these two leaders are. We have the law and order candidate, of course, in Donald Trump and the racial reconciliation candidate, really, um, in Joe Biden. Maybe that's a bit of a reach, actually, to call him that. But that is the um, the message that that he was pushing coming out of or while in Kenosha, and I think that is the um, and of course Katie can can um, can verify this, but it really seems as though that is what the campaign would like um, Biden and the Biden Harris ticket to really be looked at as uh, racial reconciliation. Let's figure out how we're going to make this better. Um, let's figure out exactly how we're going to tackle systemic racism and and eradicate it, or at least make conditions in this country easier and safer for African-Americans. And Katie, do you think that we're going to see um, the vice presidential nominee, Senator Harris, on the trail more talking about things like this? Well, we just saw her featured in an ad uh, that that just came out this week that that addressed matters uh, around policing head on. She was in that ad with Joe Biden, uh, and certainly, you know, she uh, can speak from a different life perspective uh, that, that she brings to the table. And and she's also a little bit more fluent uh, as a California senator uh, in the language of the left, the language of the protest movement in a way that, that Joe Biden you know, just isn't. Uh, you know, they, they came up uh, in different political environments, different political generations. Uh, and you know, certainly she is seen as someone who, uh, you know, certainly she was the prosecutor, former attorney general, uh, very much also a, a figure of the establishment many ways, but but she does bring a degree of comfort that's a little bit different uh, in terms of engaging with protest movements, for example, in terms of how she talks about policing. Um, and, and so it's really just kind of a different perspective that that she brings there. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it certainly seems that, that she may be uh, out there. Um, I know that the campaign sees her as someone who uh, may well be helpful in helping the the ticket connect in communities of color, uh, African-American communities, Latino communities. Again, as a California senator, I have a lot of experience representing uh, Latino voters, and, and they believe that, that she may help them connect uh, in communities in the West in particular. Of course, Arizona, Nevada will be very important. Um, so definitely, as we see Joe Biden getting out there, you know, I think fair to imagine we will start seeing more from Harris uh, at some point as well. Maya, just sort of wrapping up um, these last past two weeks um, and the focus of the Trump campaign on the so-called law and order, you know, he's been hammering this message now both during the convention and his trips to Kenosha and in interviews about, you know, 
Joe Biden's America is going to be a burning hellscape. You better elect me. And yet this week, we also got our first slew of real high quality national polls that show Joe Biden still with a pretty hefty lead. So is this just not working? Well, you know, coming out of the conventions, it was very clear that the the message that Republicans have now decided to latch on to um, with President Trump is this idea of violence um, and unrest coming to your suburbs, which we know um, is a phrase and is an idea that is just loaded with lots of euphemisms and dog whistles. And I think that the I think the reason why we see the polls still holding up in the face of these uh, sort of scare tactics is because the voters are able to recognize that uh, the 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 future, the irony of the message that this is Biden's future America, of course, right. is the fact that we're looking at Trump's current America. The unrest that they're showing in the streets is happening under this current president. And it's it doesn't really um, comfort or or make any difference. I, I think now we know with with through the polls, um, that message doesn't really doesn't really fly. Because folks are able to see, well, this is what's happening now under this current administration. And I, and it's still very unclear what uh, the Trump administration's plan here is to alleviate a lot of this unrest and make sure that Americans do feel safe in their communities outside of just um, these sort of blanket law and order statements and promises to uh, punish protesters and looters and rioters um, to the highest, the highest extent of the law, which is also something um, that only few people have really seen. Yeah, it's funny when you're an incumbent, how people expect you to do stuff. When you're the challenger, (laughs) you can make a lot of uh, promises. uh, But when you're the incumbent, it's actually in front of voters all the time. Voters are kind of smart. Katie, I want to pivot now to what we can expect for the next couple of months here. You know, Labor Day weekend has for so many years been this unofficial kickoff to the campaign season, even though this campaign feels like it's been going on for like 125 years. Um, But let's talk a little bit more about Joe Biden going on the campaign trail. Biden has been very reticent to hit the trail. um, But now it you know, has been to Kenosha, went to Western uh, Pennsylvania. What is his schedule going to look like? And what will the will all these interactions with voters in these states look similar where it's just like these small round tables, no rallies, no rope lines, things like that? It's such a good question uh, and an important question, especially for a candidate like Joe Biden, who is such a tactile politician. He loves the rope lines. He loves Mm -hmm. engaging with voters. Uh, If you saw uh, earlier this week, he actually couldn't help himself and and ended up shaking a campaign staffer's hand uh, when he got to Wisconsin with and then later had to correct that and and didn't shake someone else's hand. Uh, And he's someone who so gets his energy from crowds that are responding to him. Uh, So, you know, the degree to which he does have to be confined to smaller events, uh, you know, does perhaps present a bit of a challenge. Um, You know, they've said that, um, and and, and a lot of this seems to be a little bit of a work in progress, but, you know, he said that that he does not intend to do the sort of massive rallies that, that Trump is doing. They're very conscious of Again, this role model idea that, uh, you know, as they seek at every turn to critique 
Donald Trump's stewardship of the coronavirus to suggest that that shows uh, all of his, uh, you know, as, as he sort of suggests his, his failures of leadership, you know, they feel that they cannot be the ones out there uh, violating uh, sort of right. social distancing practices. So, you know, they have to bear all of that in mind. But at the same time, there, there does seem to be a recognition that he does need to start getting out there more. Uh, you know, they've announced that he is headed to Michigan, that he's headed uh, to uh, an event in Pennsylvania. Um, he has said that, that he's interested in, in going to places like Arizona and interestingly also Minnesota uh, was another state that he mentioned. So, you know, certainly a work in progress and I don't know that we can expect to see the sort of three states in a day type of campaigning approach that, that you know, certainly we, we come to expect in other presidential elections uh, where, where the candidate is just zipping all over the place just because there are so many more logistical details at play and, you know, certainly next month could look very different. But uh, what we do know for now is, is there there is uh, an interest from the candidate and from the campaign in uh, getting out there in person more. And we've certainly seen that interest reflected in a lot of congressional allies uh, and other supporters of Biden who say that, you know, this is the time um, he does need to start getting on the ground. Hmm. So uh, we will see more of that next week. Maya, as you are thinking about these last 60 days, you have a president right now who is running behind. What is your expectation for what the Trump campaign does from here on out to try to catch up with Joe Biden? Well, I think we'll see a lot of what we've already been seeing and that there will be this continued effort to try to find a message and just latch on to it and ride it out for as long as possible, hoping that that um, moves the polls in any single direction. Right now, of course, um, with Kenosha front of mind for a number of voters, that uh, law and order message versus being soft on crime is something that um, I think is 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 the the campaign's um, goal or just one of the messages that they've really tried to lean into at this point, depending on what September brings um, or even October, really, now that we're seeing a, a more ramped up message on this potentially um, this potentially life-saving uh, vaccine that could be coming very conveniently mm -hmm. in time for November. I think that's something we can certainly expect the Trump campaign to really uh, at least ramp up messaging on, saying that it's coming, it's coming. Um, and that's something that, of course, I mean, will give, I think, some voters a sense of hope. But at the same time, I, again, I think we have to also factor in the fact that you know, voters have been watching this this thing unfold along with the rest of us. And I think a number of them, a majority even, I would argue, according to what we're seeing in the polls, again, are saying, you know, I'll believe this when I see it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the, these last 60 days um, are a lead up to an election that is a referendum on a president's handling of the coronavirus, his handling on um, on race and racial race relations, um, and just ge the general direction of the country and people's confidence in in democracy at this point, I think is really what we're looking at. Um, and this is and Biden is leading on all of these referendum issues. So it'll just be a I think a continued um, march for the Trump White House to try to find something that is very concrete that they can latch onto, that they can create ads for, that they can um, that President Trump can tweet about. Um, to make this less an election of a referendum and more a choice between two very different people. Maya King, thank you very much. Katie Glick, thank you. Thanks thank for you. Me. Back 
back-to-school time is normally a very busy time for campaign organizers who would be swarming college campuses looking to register new voters. As part of our continuing series about how COVID-19 has changed campaigns, I reached out to an organization who's been doing this sort of campus organizing for years. NextGen is focused on three main things, uh, voter registration, voter education, and then ultimately the turnout of young voters 18 to 35. Jared DeLuf is the state's director of NextGen America. In a normal year, most of our organizing occurs on about over 230 campuses where our organizers and our volunteers can be found all over campus, right? They are standing outside uh, your classroom, outside your 8 a.m. with coffee and donuts. Uh, We're outside of your cafeteria in the afternoon. And then at some point, maybe even later on the day, one of our volunteers will knock on your dorm door uh, and ask you if you're registered to vote there yet. This obviously, as with all things with COVID, it seems this year, has really been upended. You know, with so many campuses being closed or with being remote, We've moved to a 100% virtual remote model for this year. So talk to us about what 100% virtual looks like. So we'll show up in your Zoom. Instead of passing out a paper form, uh, we will drop a link uh, where you can register online. uh, Or if you don't have online voter registration, find the actual form that you can print out later at the library uh, and return uh, yourself. And some of the other things are like very new and very creative. Uh, And, you know, when we get to work with 22, 23, 24 year olds, there's tons of great ideas uh, that folks have. So just recently, we actually have organizers and volunteers that have started creating uh, dating profiles on popular apps like Bumble or Tinder and actually starting conversations with people on there about whether they're registered, how they can request a vote by mail ballot. Wait a minute, uh, wait a minute. Are you saying that you're just setting up fake accounts and se- to say like, oh, hey, my name's... Jared, are you interested in learning about how to register to vote? Or are these people who are already on there? These are people that are already on these apps. These are people that are already using them in their day-to-day life. Instead of maybe talking about the latest movie that you saw or what the weather is like or something fun you did on the weekend, making sure that you're including in part of the conversation, hey, this is a super important election. Have you registered Mm -hmm. yet? And have you thought about how you're voting uh, in a pandemic? And it's not just yeah. dating sites, it's it's any of the places which young people exist and go about their daily lives, whether that's for entertainment, whether that's for education, whether that's in their jobs. Is there any way to measure, though, whether you are able to get these younger people registered to vote versus where you would be at this point in another universe where you are able to do this in person? Uh, That's a great question. And the answer is it is much more difficult. So as opposed to where we would uh, set up a table and pass out donuts and students would fill out a, a, a voter registration form where we're right there and can make sure that they sign in the right spot or that they put the date where it needs to be. We are kind of having to turn a lot of that stuff, you know, back over to folks. However, you know, we still largely 
largely can track this. We have an online platform set up where we can share uh, that with everyone that we talk to. It's a link you can drop into any sort of online conversation. And the first thing that it does is it gathers the person's information and just checks whether they're registered or not. From there, they can go on and either if they're not registered, they can register uh, or get more information about voting. If they are registered, they can go and find out more information in their state about requesting a vote by mail or finding how to vote early in person or how to make a plan for how they're going to vote on election day. So we really Mm. consider kind of our online platform as this one-stop shop. How much work then are you all doing just educating about the process versus the kind of work that you'd be doing probably once they're signed up, just getting them to turn out and vote? Education is... I would say 99% of everything we're doing right now. Our job is to turn young people out and get them to vote for the Democrats. We've made our argument there with these young people and we have won it. They are going to get out and support Democrats. The question really for us is how do we make sure that they can vote? And there's all sorts of questions, right? It's if my school doesn't come back, but I registered there with you in 2018, what does that mean? It's really different kind of for everybody. Uh, And so that requires a ton of work on our part. And I think why we spend so much time investing in recruiting and training volunteers who are essentially other young people, these people's peers that can help them navigate some of this process. And then our job is to make sure that we're providing folks with the tools and information to make, you know, the choice that's going to be ultimately the safest for them that makes sure that their vote gets counted this year. Tell me what you're seeing um, about this interest and whether you are concerned that Joe Biden still has some work to do in order to get some of those younger voters and younger voters of color interested in registering and then turning out for him. So we just did, uh, we just released our most recent youth tracking poll a few days ago here at the end of August. And what we have found is that of young people, 18 to 35, who say that they are definitely voting this year, that number is at 77%. So for a little bit of context, that same number at the similar point of time in 2016 was 69%. So we have seen an eight point jump that's huge. I mean, remember Donald Trump won Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin uh, by by about seventy seven thousand votes. Like this is this is that this is that margin, and so young people are definitely fired up. I think we are seeing actually that ever since, you know, the George Floyd protests and those sorts of things have happened in terms of both voter registration numbers and just the intensity that we're seeing, it has absolutely made an effect in terms of young people really turning to politics as an avenue for them to make the change that they want to see. And I can tell you just anecdotally, as we started to do more uh, events really around taking action on issues of systemic racism and police brutality. Those have been some of the most uh, well-attended uh, events that we've done throughout the year. And this is a, a huge motivating issue for young people this year. And I think given the way that Trump has conducted himself as kind of a stoker in chief of, of the violence that's going on, I think, you know, I think there's no question about where those young people will will place their vote this year that care about these issues. 
after my conversation with Jared, I decided to check in with someone doing the on-the-ground work with students. Daniel Fitzgerald is the organizing director for NextGen Nevada. Prior to the pandemic, NextGen organizers would appear in classrooms on the UNLV campus. As classes have moved online, so has the organizing. One area of our program that we'd be doing in-person um, class speeches where we'd be going in-person to talk to students. But now that most classes are being held on Zoom, we're still contacting those professors to speak to their students, just not in the flesh. They've had to get creative and meet students where they are. We hosted virtual Animal Crossing rallies through the characters of our staff members and invited people on the game to come attend. And I believe even one of our users had a little speech about why it's important to vote. It's not only social distancing that has changed things, inequities laid bare by the pandemic are also on the ballot. I think due to the pandemic, the conversations that we're having with our volunteers are a little more emotional because it seems like all of the issues that matter to us and are affecting us are on high. But I think that has also helped motivate people to get involved. This is Politics with Amy Walter. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch. He has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. The Takeaway Podcast, five stories you need to know more about every day. Putin would like to see the liberal world order fall apart. People of color have always understood that the American dream was a fantasy and an ideal. There is a crisis of institutional decay in our country. The risk of sea level rise is going to sink us before the seas ever do. May your rage be a force for good. For a daily podcast that breaks through the noise, subscribe to The Takeaway Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We had somebody get on a plane from a certain city this weekend. And in the plane, it was almost completely loaded with, with thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that. They're, they're on a plane. Where's the where's this? I'll tell you sometime, but I, I, it's under investigation right now. That's President Trump speaking on Monday with Fox News host Laura Ingram. Trump's claim of a plane, quote, almost completely loaded with thugs is a conspiracy theory. Something that started online a few months ago made its way like a toxic game of telephone to the president. Now, the idea that disinformation and conspiracy theories thrive online is nothing new. But as the presidential election ramps up and we hear things like this coming out of the president's mouth, I wondered, has anything in this realm changed since 2016? I think the difference between now and 2016 is that this has become an industry unto its own. That's Ben Collins, a reporter for NBC News covering disinformation, extremism, and the internet. Disinformation is a very good and easy way for people to make money on the internet or to become famous on the internet. Um, and back in 2016, that was only known really by foreign actors and a bunch of domestic trolls who didn't even really know that they could make money from it, who didn't really understand that this was a cottage industry yet. Uh, now, it's enormous. What you see on Facebook that is the most prevalent stuff is 
the most uh, egregious and over-the-top hysterical things that you can that you can push out. That was true in 2016, but the you know the profit incentive was really only known by uh, Macedonian teenagers, <laughs> and now it's known by pretty much everybody. And you're saying these are domestic influencers. These aren't folks that the Russians have set up. This is like homegrown people in this country who are basically spreading, knowingly spreading conspiracy theories and misinformation so that they can make some money. Yeah. So with QAnon specifically, that's probably the biggest, that's the big ticket for, for mm -hmm. 2020. Um, it's the WikiLeaks plus uh, Pizzagate plus every, it's every possible combination of every conspiracy theory combined. It's like a Hydra. It's like the, it's the final level boss of the video game, right? Um, those people are largely domestic actors. The people making money off of it are domestic actors. They're selling t-shirts on Amazon. They're selling books in the ebook store. They have 24 hour live streams on YouTube that are, you know, buffeted by uh, advertisements and Patreon, which is like a donation service. These are Americans. These are Americans sitting around trying to get people to join their cause to take down the deep state by posting garbage information on the Internet. Now, there are political operatives, people like Jacob Wall, who have turned uh, their ability to lie badly into a job or uh, uh, into like a donations uh, funnel for themselves. It's still kind of unclear how those people make money, but they do because they have lots of it. Um, so, you know, there are the high level pariahs that have, you know, put, the, put themselves in this position to do nothing but spread disinformation. But then there are these small level grifters, too, who you know, probably believe in it. A lot of them believe in these conspiracy theories and they think they're they're doing it for the cause. And a nice side effect for them is that it's extremely profitable. Yeah, how are they making money? It's not just by selling t-shirts. Like, how do you make money by going up and becoming a viral sensation pushing yeah. these theories? You can sell advertisements on the videos that you uh, push out. You know, YouTube tries to block a lot of... Uh, ads that are sold on these things, but it doesn't completely work. You can also, you know, another way you can do it is just Patreon, it's just a donation service. You can say, hey, look, we need your support to keep this live stream going. People are making thousands and thousands of dollars that way. Yeah. Uh, sometimes more than that. There's another way of doing it, of accruing email lists. This is what happened with that. Remember that We Build the Wall thing, the thing that Steve Bannon was yeah. indicted for a couple weeks ago? You know, those people made an enormous millions large email list they were then selling to political groups um, and those political groups would pay top money. These are people who, you know, this was a list of people that were willing to pay for a wall that probably wouldn't exist and hand over money with nothing coming back to them. Like there's no incentive for these people. Um, if you have a list of those people, if you're, if you're a campaign, you want that list. So that became a very lucrative thing for them. I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, this is one of the questions I have too, is when it comes right down to it, in terms of the bigger threat um, to, um, to all of us, but certainly to this election, is it that, as you said, these are homegrown Americans using these platforms to make money by spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories? Um, or is it still that at the end of the day, Russia and other nefarious foreign actors, they're so good at this, and they're very clear in what they want to be doing um, in terms of 
pushing Americans to believe certain things about candidates or issues. And so which one of these things do you think, as you are sort of processing what this could mean for November, which one is more harmful to this election? I don't think you can discount the foreign interference element, but I do think it's sort of like a multi-level marketing thing, like a pyramid scheme, where um, at some point, other people get involved in the pyramid scheme and sort of take over the playbook of the guy at the top. Um, you know, the, the Russians outlined a really perfect way to spread disinformation on the internet uh, that was then just copied by all these domestic actors. You know, uh, get a fantastical lie, try to take over trending topics on Twitter, um, have a small bot, arm, bot army that, uh, you know, amplifies this message behind you. Uh, work in direct messages, work, work with people to uh, amplify messages at a specific time in the middle of the night. So um, by the time people wake up, it is in trending topics or a right wing blog takes it and then brings it to Fox News or something. This is a playbook that has been created by these bad foreign actors and these domestic actors. All they have to do is copy it now. Foreign actors are always at the forefront of the new ways of doing this stuff. And they are going to create more playbooks. We're going to see a new playbook in 2020. We don't even know what it is yet. Um, you know, for example, QAnon is basically just Pizzagate. And Pizzagate came out of the Podesta leaks from 2016. And, you know, we're now seeing the fruits of that labor four years later. So there are going to be seeds planted this time that we'll see in 2024. And we're still recovering from all of those foreign disinformation seeds from 2016 right now. Ben, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. Uh, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Ben Collins covers disinformation, extremism, and the internet for NBC News. Ben will be part of a special hour this Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC entitled Velshi, The Disinformation Epidemic. In 2016, Russia used the partisanship and extreme polarization in the U.S. to its advantage. Existing divisions along cultural lines were easy to exploit and became touchstones in their efforts to undermine American democracy. But Russia is not the only nefarious actor in this space. I sat down with Cindy Otis, vice president of analysis at the Aletheia Group and author of True or False, a CIA analyst's guide to spotting fake news. I talked with her to understand more about who the foreign threats are today. The national security community has a responsibility to lay out publicly um, all the threats as they see them. And so it's absolutely accurate to say that it's not just Russia out there using disinformation as a tool and a tactic to advance, um, you know, a particular foreign policy goal. Um, China, Iran, Saudi, countries like that are increasingly seeing the effectiveness of using disinformation. And because they themselves have you know, a domestic capabilities where they use propaganda to, you know, control their own populations and limit freedoms at home, they do already sort of have that capability that they can then turn to advance their, their foreign objectives as well. So it's accurate to say that, you know, uh, these other countries are, are involved as well, but they're going about it in very different ways. And they also have very different levels of capability. Um, Russia is on the more sophisticated end of the foreign actors that are out there trying to use disinformation. They learned a lot from 2016 about how to cover their tracks better. Um, they've shifted some of their tactics and refined their, their capabilities to be effective. Um, 
And then you have, you know, a country like China, for example, which uses very overt means um, to, you know, spread false information and conspiracy theories about very particular areas of concern for them. So we see them, you know, use um, things like social media influencers, their own government run media, et cetera, very overtly to push back and to spread um, false information about the coronavirus pandemic, for example, or to push back on what they see as damaging rhetoric from the White House on things like the the trade uh, the trade issues, TikTok, et cetera. So mm-hmm. there's there's the foreign government piece, and then there's also these foreign commercial uh, entities as well um, that have popped up, particularly in recent years, in, for example, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, that call themselves things like PR firms or digital marketing firms, but they sell things like troll farms that you can hire to wage, you know, online influence campaigns. So we know disinformation is being used by both foreign and domestic networks to sow distrust. Of course, looming over all of this is the fact that we are about two months away from a presidential election, an election that we might not know the results of on election night, and which President Donald Trump has, without evidence, continually suggested could be rigged. One thing about all of this that concerns me is what will fill the vacuum? Who will be out there debunking false claims once election night is over? We don't have the resources at this point. We, we simply don't. We've learned a lot um, in the United States in the last couple of years, but we haven't entirely put all of the resources in place in terms of both within the social media companies at the federal government level. Um, a lot of a lot of what has, is happening is that these two sort of sides of things are deferring or um, relying on the media, nonprofits, academic institutions, disinformation researchers to do a lot of the combating investigation and messaging themselves, which is just it's it's not a fair position to put these people into, first of all, because they're not usually given the resources as well um, to do that kind of role. They're doing it for free. Um, in most cases, and it's just not sustainable with the amount of content that we're, we experience on a daily basis and will see throughout the election and afterwards. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to see exactly the kinds of things that you mentioned, pictures going viral that are taken out of context um, or, you know, were snapped by a real actual person at the moment they claim to, you know, be taking the picture, but it's completely, you know, they're they're making conclusions that aren't accurate. They're making linkages and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it is going to be a, a a challenge for anybody. But you're right. The idea that either nonprofits or even the sort of traditional mainstream media can they do enough? Do you think to kind of prepare Americans for this moment? Or do you think that because their influence is just not as powerful as it once was, that it's going to reach some people, but that the social media platforms reach many more? I mean, it's really going to take a whole of community effort. And I haven't seen that coming together yet, where, you know, mainstream media outlets are partnering with tech platforms and partnering with government, uh, civil society, etc., Um, to put out consistent messaging about some of the things that we outlined. So, you know, um, we're not going to necessarily know the election results 
in maybe any of the elections that you have voted in, right, in any of the races that you voted in uh, right on election day. This is going to take some time. Here's how the process works. Here's how mail-in voting works. Here's how absentee works. This is legitimate. This is, you know, but it's a process to help educate people so that then when they see the claims of, you know, tampering or, well, my candidate won on election day, but now you're saying they didn't win um, because of what I've been told is a rigged process, you know, we're just in such dangerous territory when we're not doing that sort of consistent messaging to help educate people ahead of time so that they know to, to spot these things or to question the kinds of narratives that they will absolutely be seeing um, on election day and afterwards. And that's your point too, right, Cindy, that it can't just be Facebook alone. And it can't just yeah. be the media alone or a group like yours saying these things. There needs to be a coordinated effort. But that seems unlikely. I mean, would this be different if there were different leadership at the White House? Or is it even more complicated than that? I do think it would be different. Um, It hasn't been a priority um, for this administration for various reasons. And without some sort of overarching coordinating mechanism, bringing all of the relevant parties together, um, coming up with a strategy and then implementing that strategy many, many months in advance of an event like this, um, it's going to turn out exactly as it has, which is multiple different groups trying to do multiple different things and hoping that it has some positive effect um, at the end of the day. You know, in the disinformation community, there's a lot of coordination um, that takes place, but it is very, you know, it is very fractured at times. It can end up being very niche where, you know, we sort of scurry off and go work on our relevant piece, whether it's, you know, building a tool to to find deep fakes or um, working on the policy angle of this or doing, you know, investigations into particular threat actors, we tend to fall back on our niche. And so we really need that sort of coordinating mechanism. And that would be, you know, a perfect role and indeed a responsibility of, of government typically. Cindy Otis, Vice President of Analysis at the Aletheia Group and author of True or False, a CIA analyst's guide to spotting fake news. On Thursday, in a post, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced further actions the network would take to counter misinformation on its platform, including a ban on new political ads one week prior to the election. Zuckerberg also addressed the possibility that we might not know the election results on election night and pointed to their voter information center as a resource. And here's what I've been thinking about lately. Those of us who work in traditional journalism are used to the attacks by politicians, especially this president, on our profession. But the constant stream of fake news has also driven many voters away from their traditional sources of information to those they feel they can trust, namely friends and family. And that's made platforms like Facebook even more powerful. It's why even attempts by Facebook to patrol the material on its site are often ineffective. After all, if you don't believe the national news media is telling you the truth, why would you believe Mark Zuckerberg is? That's why it's so important for us to patrol our own social media feeds and push back on posts we know to be untrue, just like many of our callers said they are doing. My name is John. I'm from East Hampton, New York. Unfortunately, I have a lot of friends who have decided to start sharing you know, some pretty crazy stuff. I call them out all the time. They tell me I'm naive. This is Lorenzo from Hollywood, Florida. I feel that social media is the battleground and I'm a soldier on the front line for the war against misinformation. I call out misinformation all the time for both sides, but it is heavily skewed towards pro 
Trump. Hi, uh, this is Jeannie Sanders. I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. If it's someone who has sort of gone off the rails with QAnon or cannibalism or some of the more bizarre things that I really wouldn't even want to repeat, then they're, they're beyond hope. The more we let misrepresentations sit out there, the more likely they are to be believed. That's all for us today. Props to the folks who make this show with me every week. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Major assists this week from producer Asher Stockler. Polly Irungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry and Vince Fairchild are our board ops. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.